My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. When I left, I thought that I would now suddenly be free of sexual shame and fear and anxiety. And though I had experienced those things for many years leading up until that point, I thought, now that I'm leaving the community and that I'm no longer in this conflicted position of disagreeing with these things, but still being in a culture that, uh, that teaches and supports these things, you know, I can at least, I, I'm, I'm giving up so much of what I love. I'm giving up my community, my sense of purpose. I fear I'm losing my God. Um, but at least I can be my authentic self. At least I can be who I am and not be um, haunted by the fear and the shame and the anxiety. Imagine being fully defined by how sexually pure you are, or maybe you don't have to imagine. We've probably all absorbed this type of messaging in some way. And while the notion can seem sort of archaic, a whole purity movement and industry cropped up in the 1990s in evangelical Christian communities that we are still seeing the effects of today. Purity rings, purity pledges, purity balls. Does any of this sound familiar? Purity culture teaches that women and girls are responsible for men's, quote, sexual sins. Women's bodies are blamed for men's lust, yet women shouldn't or simply don't experience sexual desire, and that a gal's virginity is her most valuable asset. It's also a very binary, heteronormative school of thought, often discriminating against trans, non-binary, intersex, and queer-identifying people. And these messages literally traumatize people— bringing about everything from deep shame, anxiety, and sexual dysfunction to symptoms that mimic PTSD. I've learned a great deal about all of this thanks to today's guest, Linda K. Klein, author of Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so thankful that you're listening. If you enjoy this episode, please find my blog at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org to learn more and to sign up for occasional email extras. I send updates about once a month with news about upcoming events, personal notes about lessons I'm learning, some fun surveys, special discounts, and more. You can also hit subscribe in your podcast app to get a new episode every week. So Linda K. Klein has spent her career working at the cross-section of faith gender, sexuality, and social change. And she knows the repercussions of purity culture's messaging on a deeply personal level. She's also thankfully, as the title of her book suggests, found healing, in part through speaking to many people who've endured similar things. One thing I really appreciated about Pure was that Linda shared what she loved about the evangelical community she was part of, because I think it's really easy to hear those negative things and think, why would anyone choose that, whether for themselves or for their family? 
I appreciate you asking that because I think we're stuck in this binary as a society where um, where we really believe that if you're within the evangelical community, you're taught that everything outside is bad and we're good. And if you're outside of the evangelical community, you know, you're taught that evangelicalism is bad and we're good. So, you know, all of us are kind of stuck in this false binary. So I really appreciate, you know, you asking about what was good about being a part of the evangelical community uh, because it's that kind of thinking that allowed me actually to challenge what was bad about it because I was able to see some things that were good that were outside of it um, eventually back in the day. Um, so some of the things that I loved, you know, there was so much. I had a, I had a robust community of people that uh, believed in a number of things. And some of the things that they believed in are continue to this day to be my most, my most valuable values. You know, things like radical love and radical acceptance, radical hospitality. You know, I went into a church the other day. Uh, I don't go to church every Sunday, but I do go from time to time. And I went to a new church and I walked in the room and nobody welcomed me and the service ended and still nobody said hi. And I was sort of standing awkwardly by myself. And I just thought to myself, gosh, I miss that part of evangelicalism that utterly insisted that if there was a new person in the room, everybody was going to be trained in radical hospitality and was going to run up to that person, (laughs) you know, and say, hi, my name is Linda, and what brings you here? And I'm so excited to see you. And I thought to myself, you know, why, why do we go anywhere uh, if not for community and if not for being welcomed and being loved, you know, why, why would we go to a a space of spiritual um, uh, refuge, you know, hoping for community and not receive it and show up a second time, right? So in evangelicalism, you know, if I had walked into that church, I would have been swarmed. It would have been awkward, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but I would have felt, I would have felt really special. And, you know, things like that, that were really embedded into the community are the kinds of things that, um, that kept me coming back week after week. uh, And that also that I find myself really missing having left, you know, of course, I left because there were all kinds of other things that were embedded into the culture, other beliefs that are uh, not only not my most valuable values, but that are counter to my most valuable values um, that were also a significant part of life there. So I know many of these values involve gender roles and sexuality. Do you recall whether in the context of your religious faith or in school or elsewhere, did you learn anything positive about sex and sexuality when you were a kid? But, you know, what's interesting is that in the evangelical church, I was empowered uh, in one way, and in society, I was empowered in an opposite way. Um, And that is that the evangelical church told me that I could say no. I could say no to someone wanting to be sexual with me. I was empowered to say no. Unfortunately, I was not empowered to say yes. (laughs) I only had I only had the power to say no. But I feel like in secular society, I often learned that I was empowered to say yes. And I didn't learn that I was empowered to say no. Wow. Right. There was an expectation of sexuality in the secular world. And there was an expectation of non-sexuality in the religious world. 
And so both gave me one end of freedom and both uh, stripped me of the other end of freedom. And ultimately, both stripped me of choice. That's so fascinating. In Pure, you talk about stumbling blocks and object lessons. I've asked hundreds of people about their sex ed experiences, and it wasn't actually until I read your book that I realized where some people received certain messages about sex, such as the scotch tape analogy. Could you share what an object lesson is? Absolutely. So an object lesson is basically what's... um, Uh, labeled as sex education. But I laugh when I say that because it actually doesn't educate people about sex at all. Um, It's really all about the individual. So I'll give you one example. Actually, I'll give you two examples uh, because I'll give you the tape example that you brought up as well for the sake of your listeners. But one of my interviewees uh, shares a very common category, which is a food-based object lesson. So she says, you know, I was with a group of my peers and the leader in front of the room held up an Oreo cookie in the front of the room. And she said, who wants this Oreo cookie? Everyone raises their hand, of course. Everybody wants the cookie. Um, And then she passes it around the room and she instructs every young person to either drop it on the ground or to spit on it. By the time it gets to the front of the room, the cookie is disgusting, of course. And then the woman holds it up in front of the room again and says, now who wants this Oreo cookie? Nobody raises their hand, of course. And then she shares, this is an example of a woman or girl before she's had sexual experience when everybody wants her and after she's had sexual experience when nobody wants her anymore. The food object lessons are plentiful. You know, I've heard people tell me about a similar object lesson around a lollipop or a hamburger or any number of other things. There are objects like a bicycle before and after it, you know, a brand new bicycle and one that's all rusty and ridden a million times, right? (laughs) Um, A car example. Um, These are all examples that I've only ever heard described uh, to women and girls. I've only ever heard this idea of becoming damaged goods used for women and girls. Mm. Now, the, there is another kind of object lesson that I've heard used for both women and girls and men and boys. And this is the object lesson that teaches not that you become worthless, but that you become dysfunctional. So the tape object lesson that you brought up is a great example of that. So the tape object lesson uh, is you hold up a piece of tape, you say, look at how sticky this is, it could stick to anything, and then you proceed to stick it to various things. Uh, I've heard one version of this that someone told me it was a piece of duct tape and it was stuck to people's arms, so it would pull up their arm hair, right? Um, Which I just feel like is particularly sort of a, a sadistic metaphor to illustrate the painfulness of sex, right? So they stick it to various things, and these various things that you're sticking it to are supposed to be metaphors um, for having sex with something. You could, but, you know, other examples, you stick the piece of tape to a couch or whatever it is, and it gets dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And then the person eventually holds up and says, see how this, this tape no longer sticks to anything anymore. I can stick it to my arm now, and it will just fall away. So in this teaching... Um, you know, the idea is that you become dysfunctional. You are no longer able to fuse uh, with somebody else like a marriage partner because you've been so dirtied by so many other things that you've been stuck to. They're all so heartbreaking. Goodness. 
The food one is really interesting to me because it has this idea that you are to be consumed. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I had the same reaction. It's like if you're if we're talking about a hamburger or a cookie or a lollipop, these are all things that eventually, even if only one person is the person who eats them, is devoured and finished and done. Mm. Is done. Is disappeared. And not fixable. I remember in your book, you wrote about so many of the sins being redemptive, that you could be forgiven and you could move on and you could be healed, but not for this one. Right. Because instead of uh, this being posed as something that you do, this is posed as something that you are. Mm. Right. You are an Oreo cookie that has, um, you know, spit and, and, and like, you know, dust from the ground or whatever it is on it. You are a piece of tape that has been stuck to so many things that it's no longer capable of sticking to anything else anymore. So this is, of course, the language of shame. So the language of guilt, when you guilt somebody, uh, you talk about what they did, right? Guilt is the feeling, I did something bad. When you shame somebody, you talk about who they are. And shame is the feeling, I am something bad, or people will think that I am something bad. Mm -hmm. So when you look at these purity teachings, you know, really, they are 100% rooted in shame, because you are objectifying people in a way that teaches them that they are uh, consumed by uh, their sexuality. So, you know, so if you drink, you know, that's something that you did, and you can be forgiven if you underage drink, right? If you smoked, you know, which was which was considered certainly a sin in my youth group. Um, you know, you could be forgiven for smoking. That's something that you did. But if you were too sexual, whatever someone deemed to be too sexual, you know, certainly having sex was considered too sexual, but all kinds of other things, various people considered too sexual. Some people even felt you couldn't have an intimate uh, friendship with someone of the opposite sex because that would be uh, cheating emotionally uh, on your future husband. That's so crazy. I imagine that even if you heard these messages and thought that cannot be right, they could still get into your psyche. You wrote about a friend, Piper, who seemed really confident and edgy, and she did challenge these ideas, and she still struggled pretty significantly. Did you find that to be the case with a lot of people and in your own experience? Piper and I were, were absolutely both examples of that. You know, both Piper and I grew up disagreeing with these teachings. Now, we took different routes on how to handle our disagreement with them, but both of us felt that they were deeply problematic. You know, I grew up uh, giving a lot of pushback about these teachings, not necessarily, you know, always giving pushback, but I remember once being pulled aside and told that my shorts were too short and, and actually saying to the leader who pulled me aside, listen, what, this is wrong, right? <laughs> you understand that, right? You understand that if you're telling me that the boys are, are going to um, masturbate because they saw my knees, that, that they have a problem, not me, right? Like, you, you understand this. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. I'm going to go home and change. I'm going to change. <laughs> but I also, want, I also want to be clear that this is a problem, right? I remember saying, it's actually, it was a fascinating response. She actually sighed really heavily and she said, I knew this would happen to me, Whoa. which I have thought about a lot over the years. And I think what she was saying was that she also found these teachings to be uh, not obviously good. And 
she knew that, but that she was a leader. She was a leader and she um, was required to say these things to young people. I'm sure that she was told she was required to say these things. And, you know, and, and I have often thought about how she sighed heavily and said, I knew this would happen to me. Like she knew that if she pulled someone aside, that they would come back and say, this is wrong and this is bad. That scenario that your knees could somehow create these urges and voids basically made you a stumbling block in the context of purity culture. Is that a term they use? Is that what they taught you? Yeah, that's another object. That's another way that uh, that I was objectified, uh, that my sexuality was objectified. So uh, a stumbling block is a term that you hear a lot in the Bible, and it's always presented as something that will get between um, a Christian and Christian community, right, or between a Christian and God. And it is never in the Bible described, um, a stumbling block is never used to describe a woman or girl who makes a uh, a boy or man have sexual thoughts or feelings by how she walks or talks or dresses. And yet in the evangelical community, I almost exclusively grew up hearing that term used in that way. So regularly, I, I was pulled aside and many of my friends were pulled aside and, and called stumbling blocks or warned that we would become stumbling blocks uh, because because we were said to have been bringing out sexual thoughts or feelings in boys. Sometimes it was, you know, that we felt that they felt that our shorts were too short, as that example was. Uh, sometimes it was that we were calling a boy and, um, and that that was considered too flirtatious or talking to the boys too often. So there are all kinds of different ways that we could be accused of being a stumbling block. You had this wonderful epiphany where you realized that you were not alone in the challenges you were facing and kind of the repercussions. Even though you had moved on from that particular evangelical church, you had a conversation and realized, I'm not the only one. Would you speak to that turning point and also these effects that you were feeling that others were experiencing too? Absolutely. So this actually goes back to one of your previous questions. You said, Though you and Piper and many others disagreed with this teaching, you know, did they still get into you? And the answer is absolutely, because I actually ended up leaving evangelicalism when I was 21, 20, 21, right in there, 21. And, um, and ultimately, when I left, I thought that I would now suddenly be free of sexual shame and fear and anxiety. And though I had experienced those things for many years leading up until that point, I thought, now that I'm leaving the community and that I'm no longer in this conflicted position of disagreeing with these things, but still being in a culture that uh, that teaches and supports these things, you know, I can at least I, I'm, I'm giving up so much of what I love. I'm giving up my community, my sense of purpose. I fear I'm losing my God. Um, but at least I can be my authentic self. At least I can be who I am and not be um, haunted by the fear and the shame and the anxiety. And the scariest thing that happened after I left is that uh, I was surprised, <laughs> um, disheartened, pained to realize that those things did not go away, that I was still experiencing shame and fear and anxiety that was debilitating. And that, that was a big deal for me, because that was the first moment that I realized that though I had disagreed with these things, I had still internalized them. And I had so deeply internalized them, in fact, that I no longer had a choice 
about whether or not to experience them. I had been in a context that had trained my brain <laughs> in a particular way of thinking and feeling and, and acting. And though I now looked at the world differently, I, my body was still responding to that training. So I would start to, uh, you know, consider the possibility of having sex, which I started to consider in my early 20s after leaving the church. I remember going to my long-term boyfriend and telling him that I was ready to have sex outside of marriage, that I no longer felt I had to wait until marriage to have sex. And I remember him being delighted. <laughs> and then, and then, and that was then the beginning, unfortunately, of what became years and years and years of us together realizing that that was not going to be possible. Mm. Every time that I would even talk with him about having sex or start to get cl anywhere close to having sex, you know, anywhere within that spectrum, I would end up breaking into tears and um, the eczema that comes out when I get stressed would come out and I would be scratching myself until I bled and I would end up just in a ball in the corner of the bed, you know, hating myself. And this was definitely did not engender sex. <laughs> this did not lead to sex. And I would still be so filled with anxiety even afterward that I would sometimes take pregnancy tests just to show myself that I hadn't gotten pregnant, though I hadn't had sex. So I knew I hadn't gotten pregnant, and yet the fear that I had gone too far sexually and would be punished in some way as I had been promised I would be growing up. Um, you know, was so great that I felt like I had no other choice but to uh, take a pregnancy test because I had no other way to quiet to quiet the fear and to quiet the anxiety that um, that was dogging me at every moment. And to kind of bring it to your question, I'm sorry, this is such a long answer, um, but 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 I tell all of that to answer your question, which was realizing that I wasn't alone, because when I was having these experiences, I was really feeling isolated. And I looked around at my secular peers, and they were not experiencing these things. Uh, I'm not saying that they had perfect sexual lives, but they were not experiencing debilitating shame and fear and anxiety, and they certainly were not taking pregnancy tests, so they weren't having sex. And it really wasn't until I started to call up my girlfriends back home in the church and telling them what happened to me and what was happening to me and started to hear that they were experiencing many of the same things that I started to understand uh, not only that I wasn't alone, but that there were so many of us who were, who were experiencing these things that, that surely uh, it wasn't my fault because it couldn't, be, it couldn't be just my fault because it wasn't just me. There were so many of us who were having this overwhelming fear and shame and anxiety that we had taken completely different life paths. Were you surprised by any of the responses you heard from people? You interviewed people for years, and it seemed there were common threads. But was there anything that really surprised you that happened as a repercussion? There is one thing that came up that I actually didn't write about in the book that was really surprising to me. And that was that I heard a, a surprising number of people say a particular phrase in their interviews with me, which was, I don't feel like a person. And a lot of those same people later on in their story used a different phrase, which was, I started to feel like a person when. 
And it happened so much that I started to tag it and I started to, you know, highlight it when it would come up and then I would go back later and I started looking at all the instances where these phrases came up. And what was really fascinating to me is that in every instance, when a woman would share with me the phrase, I didn't feel like a person or I don't feel like a person, it was in reference to a time when she was denying some part of her authentic self. One example would be that she was hiding a trauma, such as a rape, feeling that other people didn't want to hear about it or couldn't handle it. And so she had to hold that burden on her own and deny and hide that part of her deep truth and deep reality. Another example would be somebody who wanted to uh, pursue a particular path with her life but felt that she wasn't allowed to, you know, for example, one person wanting to become um, a, a pastor, but feeling that women weren't allowed to preach and, uh, and feeling like she wasn't a person, right? Because she is instead doing all the things that she was supposed to do that everyone wanted her to do, being the good girl, <laughs> doing what everyone else wanted for her. Um, another woman just talked about little everyday things. You know, she she felt like it was her job to make everyone else happy, which, of course, going back to our previous conversation about how you would welcome the new person in the room, you know, that is part of our training. It is part of our training in the evangelical world to always be on the lookout for other people and how you can make them happy, you know, whether it's welcoming them or in, in her case, you know, it, it had been taken to such an extreme that anytime anyone would ask her to hang out, or anything like that. She felt like she was never allowed to say no. <laughs> she felt like she was never allowed to say, oh, I'm so tired today, or I had such a bad day at work, or you know what, I'm actually really sad today. And that was another category of times that people said they didn't feel like a person. It's when they were denying their feelings, when they were pretending to be happy, and they were actually really sad or really angry. You know, and, and one of the ways they talked about it was they felt like other people were people, other people got to be people. They got to be angry. They got to be sad. They got to make their own life choices. They got to, um, you know, tell their truths no matter, no matter how, it, how it affected other people, but not them. They had to be perfect. They had to be pure. They had to be the good girl. They had to do everything just right. And when people would talk about feeling like a person, it was the exact opposite it was when people first told that painful story about their lives that they had been hiding. It was when they first took those steps to pursue um, studying the Bible, though they were taught that that wasn't an appropriate course of action for them. It was when they started to say, I am mad. I'm mad. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that was a trend that came up that that I didn't write about in the book because you know, everything is related. So it is related to purity teaching. Absolutely. And one of the things that we, um, that we shut down in ourselves is our sexuality because of these expectations. But the reality is that purity teachings are also inextricably tied to other teachings like gender teachings that teach women um, in this community. And that I would say is a, unfortunately, a societal teaching that our, uh, our worth is in how much we contribute to others' lives. You know, are we making our husbands happy? Are we giving up everything for our kids? Are we doing everything we can for our parents? You know, we are only worth something if we have almost nothing left because we've given so much. As you were sharing that, I was reminded of a part of your story that really struck me when you talked about feeling like you had to always be happy 
even when you were experiencing debilitating digestive health problems, people didn't even believe you when you presented yourself as so pleasant and so I've got this. And that's such a contrast. Again, as you mentioned, you had the agency to say no to sex, but then you had to say yes constantly elsewhere. You were always people-pleasing. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, very much for me, hiding hiding that I was as sick as I was, was a part of not being a person. I remember when I first started to to tell people how sick I was in the early days, and they would they would discredit it, you know, and say, oh, you can't be that sick and, you know, things like that. I remember feeling like I was being called a bad girl. <laughs> you know, people were accusing me of complaining, of uh, manipulating them for attention. Um, there are some things I didn't even write about in the book that people gave me as feedback. You know, not only were doctors um, discrediting me, but people in my life were discrediting me. And I learned that I wasn't a person. I learned that I uh, that I uh, had to, in order to be acceptable, to be good, to to be the good girl who didn't show her sickness and who didn't show, uh, you know, her anger at having not been taken seriously or her pain at not been ta- being taken seriously. Um, and and really, you know, once I started to be um, seen by doctors you know, you're absolutely right. I was so good at performing. I was so good at turning off my, my personhood and turning on the who I'm supposed to be that it actually made it, it made it even harder for me to be believed. Um, with one doctor saying, you know, if you were in as much pain as you say you are, you wouldn't be smiling so much. <laughs> you know, actually, it's funny. It's funny. Even after I got sick, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, 10 years after my total colectomy, which, uh, you know, when I under, under eventually did get taken seriously by doctors, um, which which really was the beginning of me starting to see myself as a person, by the way, because, you know, when I underwent those four surgeries and had to have my entire large intestines removed and much of my small intestines removed, it really became clear that not treating myself as a person and as a whole person with a spirit and a mind and a body, you know, was actually going to be life-threatening. So that was a, a major turning point for me um, and, and a moment when I started to say I'm not going to perform happiness or goodness anymore. I'm actually going to be honest about how I feel. Um, and I remember that being really hard for people when I started to be honest about how I felt. And people used, I remember people saying to me um, as I started to get well, gosh, you used to be happy all the time. I miss that happy girl, you know? (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) I was like, you know what, sister? I wasn't happy all the time. (laughs) That's just what I was showing you. But, you know, even even years later, so I would say, you know, 10 years after my total colectomy, um, you know, I went to a new doctor and uh, and he didn't have my records. And I remember he was interviewing me and saying, tell me about your health. And I mentioned total colectomy, which means, you know, that your entire large intestines was removed. And he was like, no, 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 no. You said that wrong. You, you didn't have your whole large intestines removed. And I was like, no, 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 I did that. That, that, yeah, I did. And he's like, I don't think you know what total colectomy means. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I, I, I do, I do. And I just remember him looking at me and like cocking his head. We got into a whole argument about whether or not I actually had had the surgeries that I had had. And, and I think it's because, uh, you know, because I appeared to him 
healthy and happy. <laughs> you know, all the things, all the things that uh, that we are taught that you aren't when you're sick. But the reality is, is that so many of us in my community were so good at appearing healthy and happy, and we were all hiding all kinds of different pains. You know, whether it was the pain from sexual shaming or the pain from illness, which I don't think those things are entirely unrelated. Um, and we were very, very good at that hiding. And at the same time, you had to seem as though you were experiencing pleasure while not really experiencing pleasure. And I'm sure that extended into sex and sexuality. Did you learn anything about actual sexual pleasure? Did you hear anything about whether it was a good or bad thing? Or was that sort of to be avoided? Well, we definitely never talked about sex at all. I mean, again, you know, that sex education term is not a useful term <laughs> because we never talked about sex. But but the promise was always if you're utterly uh, non-sexual before marriage, you're going to get into marriage and you're going to have a blissful, perfect, amazing sex life. Wow. It was just going to magically <laughs> happen. It was going to magically happen that you would go from literally many of my interviewees not even knowing what sex was until they got married, you know, having, having misunderstandings about it, what it, what it was, or having no idea what it was. Um, but they were supposed to suddenly, you know, become uh, hypersexual tigresses. So I remember one of my interviewees told a story you might remember about how a week before she uh, got married, she was given a book uh, called The Art of Marriage. It's since been renamed, but it's basically a, a sex guide for evangelical couples who are at the beginning of their marriage or into their marriage. And she was reading through it and she was like, what is this? You know, it's suddenly you're sort of like shock therapy into thinking and talking about sex. Um, but it wasn't enough, unfortunately. And she ended up um, not being able to have sex uh, for years and years and years successfully with her husband. Um, but anyway, but I read that book myself. And I remember I read it after having left the evangelical community. I, you know, while I was doing these interviews, um, having gone back to my hometown and talked to the girls I grew up with in the church about this, and then having done 12 years of interviews with people around the country, I was also doing a lot of research because I was hearing the stories about how these things were impacting our lives. And I understood that. I said, okay, you know, we all grew up in this community. We're all having, or many of us are having sexual shame and fear and anxiety now, but I didn't really understand why. And now I have a much clearer sense of why, but you know, I was doing a lot of research to try to understand that why. And one of the things that I did in that year is I picked up that book, The Art of Marriage. And I remember reading it and thinking to myself, gosh, you know, half of this book is incredibly healthy and helpful. <laughs> with things, with saying things like, guess what, guys, sexual pleasure is okay. And by the way, women should experience sexual pleasure too. And they even talked about simultaneous orgasming as being an ultimate goal, right? Um, indeed. <laughs> and, um, and then the other half of it was deeply, deeply shaming and deeply embedded in this purity culture that taught that if a woman was even remotely sexual before marriage, that whatever sexual problems or dysfunctions they had were the result of her sexual expression before marriage, be it through masturbation or via not her, her, her not holding her sexual line well enough with the man who became her husband or whatever it was. So, you know, again, this is an example of how these healthy and helpful uh, uh, 
senses of community, messages, different things like that, are intertwined inextricably from these harmful, uh, deeply damaging messages. So, so one of the reasons, you know, as you began this conversation, um, asking and saying how it's difficult for secular people sometimes to, to make sense of why we don't leave. You know, we don't leave because of these healthy, helpful things uh, that are unfortunately weeded through and among and around these damaging, uh, unhealthy, unhealthy things. I love how you talked about brain plasticity and how these traumatic effects and the wiring that happens to internalize all this shame can be turned around. Could you share a bit about your own turning point and kind of what that looks like for people? I have a feeling there are quite a few people who are on that path who will be listening to this. Mm. Hello. Hello, fellow <laughs> journeyers. Hello, <Yeah>. fellow journeyers. <laughs> this has been a long journey for me, so I appreciate you being here. Um, you know, really for me, it was that realization that I wasn't alone. It was it started out with those first few conversations that I had with the girlfriends that I grew up with in my church and hearing their stories and uh, saying, oh, my gosh, how can you be having the same experiences as me? You know, you who are still in the evangelical church or you who didn't kiss anyone until your altar, you know, you were at the altar getting married or you who, you know, all kinds of different life decisions that people made. You know, hearing, hearing all these stories that echo the truth of my own life was the beginning of the healing because it, it broke me out of this um, feeling that I was alone. And it taught me that if I told my story, if I called out into the wilderness, that there would be others who had experienced the same thing who would call back, that there would be an echo. And that's when I started to really in earnest start to travel around the country and to talk with people about, uh, about their stories. And in many ways, I've come to describe my interviews more accurately as a kind of intimate story exchange because people did tell me their stories and their stories were the focus of our conversation. But oftentimes I would respond to somebody's story by saying, you know, I actually had a similar experience that I would like to share with you because you just told me that you think that you're crazy <laughs> and I want you to know that you're not, you know, or if you are, so am I. And here are five other stories from other people who have told me the same thing. Mm -hmm. And this experience of our doing this trading of stories, of our doing this sacred story exchange, more and more solidified for me that I wasn't the problem, that the problem was something outside of me that was taught to me, that was taught to us, and that the only way to break free from it was to come into voice. You know, and at this point, I'm in such a, such a different place because because of those 12 years of what basically turned into narrative therapy for me, <laughs> you know, through this interview process. And then, you know, then at the end, capstoning it with, with writing a book in which I tell these stories really publicly and, you know, am, am inviting more and more people to enter into this echo chamber and to call out and to say, I'm here too, I've experienced this too, you know, and to trust that, that someone else's voice will answer their call. That is so beautiful. As I was reading your story, I found myself wondering if it felt brave to you to write this book. And as I was thinking it, you went into discussions that you had with your mom and emotional challenges you had and 
fear that you had around actually releasing this book. Would you speak to that experience? Because you and your mom had a really interesting dynamic, though it seems like she's really proud of you now. Hmm. That's nice. That's nice for you to have taken that. Um, she and I have been on a, a deep journey with this. And, and it, was it brave for me to write the book? I will tell you that it took all of my bravery to write the book. Um, it's, which is maybe a different way of putting it. it. It took all of my courage. It took all of my bravery um, because I had so many fears. First of all, the, the fear of re, uh, bringing myself back to the attention of the people that had shamed me at one point to such an extent that I, it probably took me about five years of trying to have sex before I was actually able to have sex, right? Um, you know, I was, I was, had that level of shame <laughs> and I had finally moved away from it and had finally healed from it and had finally dropped off the radars of the people who were shaming me and, you know, putting the book out there and, um, putting myself in front of, of people who I knew would shame me now on a public level, not the same people, but a different, broader set of people, right? Um, took a lot for me. I was really, really scared. But the thing that was beneath that was the people who were the closest to me. And the person I was the most afraid um, of losing my relationship with was my mom. Because my mom and I had been talking about the fact that I was struggling with these things and interviewing people and working on the subject the entire time. And she had been through a roller coaster of feelings around it. And some of her feelings, you know, were a fear as great as mine, you know, if not greater. In fact, actually, I will say greater than mine. Um, she had fears about me going to hell, about um, people turning away from the church because I was talking about these things and therefore them going to hell and me being held responsible for it. Um, and she also had the same fears as me. She had fears that perhaps I was doing God's work. Perhaps this was God's will but that the evangelical community would not see it that way and that they would destroy and that they would destroy me for it. <laughs> you know, so, so she was, she was sort of torn between seeing, um, seeing the world from the evangelical perspective that what I was doing was sinful and bad and seeing the world from another perspective that said, well, perhaps God is bigger than this. Um, but, uh, but, but if you, if you don't go to hell after death, you know, I'm afraid if you're experiencing it here on earth. And even her getting there was part of her trajectory and part of her movement and part of her motion. Um, you know, I think, I think she still is torn in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think that she has a tremendous amount of peace around my uh, doing this work that was never available to her before. Um, she and I have had so many long, deep conversations. And now she really is able to say that she's proud of me. And, um, and to say, you know, at one point, she actually uh, recently said, I, I think you are doing God's work, which is huge, mm. <laughs> you know, absolutely huge. And I feel very grateful to her for having been on this journey with me, because, as you know, from reading the book, a lot of parents, when uh, kids start to question these things, uh, tell their kids, it's us or your questions, uh, hoping that they'll turn their kids away from the questions. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, when the kids feel that they have no choice but to choose their authentic selves, questions and all, 
breaking their relationship with their children, uh, you know, irreparably. Wow, that's really, really powerful. How would you describe your faith now? I recall you saying that it's become quieter. Yeah, well, I grew up in an evangelical community, and the word evangel was part of that. Uh, you know, one of the expectations of the community was evangelizing. It was really our uh, expectation that we would bring others into that fold. And I think as part of a reaction to that for many years, I got very quiet with my faith. Uh, I, I, I would pray all day throughout the day, but I wouldn't tell anybody I was doing it. Um, I would, uh, you know, use a spiritual language in my mind, but I would change it in my conversation with someone, <laughs> right? Um, because I really was trying to, um, I think in many ways, uh, to be, to be a spiritual person and not be evangelizing. And I think that over, over recent years, you know, and, and specifically recent months, especially with the book coming out and people asking me about my faith, I've come to, I've come to a different place where I'm actually able to talk about my faith and I'm able to claim that God and religion and faith are a massive part of who I am um, without, without feeling like I'm infringing on anyone else's space, right? Um, I do not think it is my role <laughs> to evangelize anymore, right? Um, and yet I do want to be honest and be, and be authentic also about the fact that it is a part of my life, right? And a huge part of my life. And, uh, and that I feel very, very grateful that though I lost my faith community, that I never um, felt like I lost the God that I continue to have faith in. That is really beautiful. And I imagine it gives a lot of people hope because fear of losing the good parts is something that could be a stumbling block, you know, from getting out of the negative parts. Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. You're exactly right. And I mean, especially when you're raised within a community that believes it's all or nothing. So, so I think, you know, when I left, I think I was taking a massive risk. I, I didn't know if perhaps they were right. If perhaps when I left, I would lose God, who meant more to me than absolutely anything. And I had to, to really exercise true faith, I would say, in that moment. And to step away and to say, I'm going to trust. <laughs> I'm going to trust because my gut tells me, and perhaps that gut is the Holy Spirit inside of me talking, that you're still going to be there. You know? And in, there's a, a Martin Luther King quote about um, uh, faith is taking the next step, though you can't see the stairwell. Right? So it was, it was that that trusting that I'm going to step down and I might fall into the abyss, um, but I'm going, to exercise, I'm going to exercise the faith and find out. To learn more about Linda Klein, her book, and Break Free Together, which she founded to support other people in their own healing journey, visit lindakklein.com. K is spelled out, Linda K-A-Y-K-L-E-I-N.com. Now for a related question from a listener that I suspect people will be able to relate to, I received this note from John. I'm a 66-year-old male and happily married for 26 years. I've got the perfect relationship except for one thing. I'm stuck in a sexless marriage. I've always had a high libido and my wife had a low libido. 
Somehow we made it work, but since menopause, she has no libido. I went to counseling, and my counselor recommended masturbation as a way for me to find sexual pleasure without depending on my wife. This makes sense, except for two small snags. First, I grew up Catholic, and I was brainwashed into believing that masturbation was sinful and ended in eternal damnation. The only acceptable sex in those days was PIV, penis and vagina sex. I'm so well-trained that I relied totally on my wife to initiate. So even if I masturbate, I feel like the only good way to do it is for a woman to initiate the act, and my wife wants nothing to do with it. I'm desperately looking for ways to initiate a ritual of self-pleasure on my own, but I've been too well-trained to only engage in sex when I'm doing things to please a woman. What advice do you have for a man who's looking for ways to find solo sexual satisfaction? How can I unlearn the years of training to put a woman's needs before my own? First of all, John, I really commend you for reaching out. That takes so much courage. Shame can't thrive as well without secrecy, so I really hope that even sharing helped you a little bit. I also know from experience and from talking to countless people who've endured sexual shame that it is totally surmountable. A few things came to mind for me that might feel helpful. I think you are the expert of your body and self, so use whatever kind of resonates with you. One is journaling your thoughts out. And I would journal out the negative thoughts and then argue them. So your past tells you that masturbation is shameful, but those are old tapes and they're wrong. So argue back, like literally write down why those thoughts are wrong and restate the truth. An example would be writing, you know, I feel shameful about masturbating and then arguing Self-pleasure is healthy, normal, and something I deserve. Even if you don't feel it in your heart yet, writing these down can really help. I know because I've used it for my own negative self-talk before. It's so powerful. You can also seek out ways to make solo play more comfortable within your own value system. Obviously, some of the values you don't uphold rationally anymore. But here's an example. A very religious friend of mine only looks at pictures of her boyfriend when she masturbates because she feels uncomfortable sort of lusting after somebody else. It's totally okay to work within what works for you and feels comfortable right now. You could also try EFT. It's emotional freedom technique or tapping. It pairs words with messages and tapping literally with your fingers on acupressure points like your side of your hand and your head. I know it might sound a little bit woo-woo for some people, but I was skeptical and then I tried it and I was like, wow, this can be really helpful. You can find YouTube videos that guide you through all kinds of different themes and it takes minutes. Um, I personally notice benefits right away. And lastly, this might be helpful to think about. If your wife really doesn't want to have sex or have anything to do with it or even want to want it, then you are actually prioritizing her needs by enjoying your own healthy sexuality privately. Does that make sense? Like if she wants you to be happy and you're doing it for the happiness of your partnership, that might help you feel a little bit better if you think of it in that context. I would challenge you to do that. Here is what sex and relationship therapist Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com wanted to share with you. John, thanks for this question. You know, pleasuring oneself is natural. Babies even touch themselves in utero. So to me, feeling pleasure in one's body is a God-given right. Now, before I speak to your feelings about masturbation, I'd actually like to know a little bit more about your feelings about being in a sexless relationship. 
because it seems like your wife made a unilateral decision that because she doesn't feel desire, you both don't have sex. And I'm not sure that your wife has any distress about this or if she's even brought it up with her gynecologist or thought about seeing a sex therapist to see what's possible. So what saddens me is that she's not even aware that she's cutting herself off of her own pleasure, much less your pleasure in life. And that, you know, to me, being connected to our sexuality is our connection to our vitality and our aliveness. Um, And so, you know, I always sort of say it sort of nails to the chalkboard to me when women say, you know, they're okay that they never have sex again. Um, So I first suggest that you talk to her about what you really miss about sex and how the intimacy with you, with her helps you to feel. And I'd also invite you and and her to read the book, um, Come As You Are by Emily Nagasaki. Because the reality is desire is complex and that most women don't honestly have spontaneous desire. They have reflexive desire. And this comes from the research of Rosemary Bassan. So when women are willing, or as I like to say, open and receptive, it's often that through the touch, the caressing, the kissing, it just feels good in the body and the body gets turned on and then the desire kicks in. And I'm hoping that your wife will recognize that when you made the decision to marry her 26 years ago and be monogamous, it wasn't to be sexless. And let's be clear, you know, after menopause, sex can be painful. But first, there are many ways to address that. And second, even if worst case scenario, the pain can't be resolved, and your wife isn't open to the idea or the experience of penis and vagina sex, there are still so many ways to give each other pleasure with your hands and your mouths. So I hope this is something that you bring back to her and spark, as I always say, sort of not a definitive conversations, but a series of conversations about the meaning of sex and and what's possible for you both. And then coming back to you, you know, solo sex has enormous psychological and health benefits. You know, it reduces stress, boosts your immune system, helps sleep and on and on. So I would invite you to consider your solo play as the ultimate act of self-care, taking time to exclusively focus on yourself and receiving pleasure. And I agree, you have a lot of conditioning from the messaging you got um, growing up to rewire. And I imagine that there are all kinds of negative intrusive thoughts about being bad or, you know, feelings of guilt or shame that pop into your head or into your mind as um, you're stimulating, you know, for self-pleasure. But I would say we can't control these thoughts. That's why they call them intrusive. But we can decide if we choose to listen to them. And by that, I mean these thoughts... If you pay attention to them, they become sort of like kindling to the fire of these bigger feelings of guilt or shame. And yet, if you think about these thoughts like a train, you just sort of choose not to get on. Instead, you choose to redirect your attention to what feels good in your body or even flipping into a fantasy about your hottest sexual encounters with your wife. This is definitely a skill and it takes time to learn, but you can totally retrain your brain. And if you feel like you're being stuck or more complicated feelings may emerge, I highly recommend seeing a qualified sex therapist. And the organization I always recommend is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And their website is asect, A-A-S-S-A-M-E-C-T dot org. Um, Because ideally, with your wife, you're going to explore all that's possible. But even if she's not yet ready, definitely go on your own. Because one person can turn the tide in the relationship. And Certainly, you can turn the tide on the meaning of your enjoying solo play on your own. As always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. She is the master of turning your inner sexy pilot light back on. If anyone listening struggles with low desire, definitely check her site out. Interestingly, in recent interviews, Dr. Basson, the researcher that Megan mentioned, 
said she really wanted to make the point that men also experience responsive desire and sort of debunk the myth that men don't desire emotional intimacy or need it as much as women. It sounds to me like you, John, are experiencing responsive desire, you know, desire for partnered sex only in response to your wife making moves. It's really not necessarily a a gendered thing. And I think knowing that you yourself also may need to kind of set the stage in an appropriate way and also value intimacy. Intimacy tends to foster desire in all genders. So if you're missing that too, it's probably something to really delve into addressing. I'm so glad Dr. Megan brought that up. If any of you listening want to improve an intimate relationship, Dr. Megan is part of an awesome free event she wanted to invite you all to be a part of. Last week, I mentioned a new course that will be coming soon to create your own great life with great sex. As a prelude to that, think of this as a little bit of foreplay. I'm excited to share and be part of an exciting free program coming out on February 4th. It's called A League of Extraordinary Couples, and it's hosted by my friend and compassion activist, Amy Elizabeth Gordon. This program is for anyone interested in creating powerful personal relationships. Amy's bringing together 20 renowned individuals and couples, myself included, to share the keys to stronger, healthier relationships. So don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to open up a whole new world of possibilities and relationship hacks. To register, go to augustmclaughlin.com, where the link to get access is at the bottom of today's show notes. Can't wait to have you join and reap the benefits learning from today's leading relationship experts. That sounds so awesome. I hope you'll check it out. Jump straight to the link by going to augustmclaughlin.com forward slash blog. Find the episode and scroll down. If this episode struck you, I hope you'll take a few moments to give Girl Boner Radio a rating and simple review. They really help keep things going here. You can also follow along on Spotify or iHeartRadio. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazzell, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.